Song of Solomon. You will likely never hear that Brother Wade is going to be preaching an expositional series of sermons from the Song of Solomon. And if you don't know why, you will before we're done tonight. The Song of Solomon, better referred to as the Song of Songs, is a romantic song. We can talk in some greater detail about who the song pictures as the bride and the groom. Customarily, it's understood that Solomon is the groom and the Shunammite or the Shulamite woman, depending on your translation, is the bride who is pictured in this back-and-forth love song between bride and groom. The bride and the groom are singing one to another. They are occasionally joined by a chorus of other voices. The daughters of Jerusalem are the female choir, and the brothers of the king are the male choir. There are occasions where it's not entirely clear who it is that speaks at that particular moment, but what is clear is that the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs is intended to be uh, the story of, of marital intimacy, the kind of joy and satisfaction and sensual fulfillment that is to be experienced within the bonds of marriage. There have been historically two ways of interpreting the Song of Songs, and I'm going to try to be consistent in referring to it as the Song of Songs. Song of Solomon is appropriate, but I think Song of Songs is what the song itself would identify itself as. There is an allegorical approach to interpreting the Song of Songs that sees the Song of Songs as a metaphor for or an allegory for the relationship that exists between God and Israel or from this side of the new covenant between Jesus and the church. And although there certainly seem to be implications for the love that Jesus has for the church and application that is to be made to the covenant relationship that existed between God and the people of Israel, what seems primary here is a literal understanding, whereas we have or wherein we have a description of a husband and wife and the deep affection that they feel for one another. Origen, a famous early church father, wrote a 10-volume commentary explaining the allegorical meaning of songs. Another church father, Bernard of Clairvaux, preached 86 sermons from the Song of Songs covering only the first two chapters. Now the deal is when you begin interpreting biblical passages allegorically, you can come up with anything. You can fill as many volumes as you have imagination. But I think the Song of Songs is to be read and understo understood first as a song that is to be taken in a more literal way describing the relationship that exists between a husband and a wife. Much of what is written in the song is quite descriptive of the intimacy enjoyed by a husband and a wife. And when you begin to unpack what is being described in so much of the imagery used in the Song of Songs, it becomes abundantly clear why it is that Brother Wade will not be preaching an expository series of sermons from the Song of Solomon. I have included in the outline that you have this evening a lengthy quote 
from an Old Testament introduction by Arnold and Bayer. And it's long, and I'm going to read it, and I don't ordinarily like reading long passages, but I think it's a good, uh, a good way of capturing the essence of what the Song of Songs is all about. And I, I'm just operating under the expectation that this is a book in the Old Testament that's very unfamiliar to most people, because we don't often understand its structure and the flow, and so we may read through the Song of Songs in our annual Bible reading plans, or there may be something that draws our attention, maybe through a single verse, something in a devotional that we, re- that we read, usually taken out of context. But I'm not sure that there are a lot of people who really understand the essence and application of the Song of Songs. Arnold Byer uh, writes, Song of Songs is a <coughs> simply stated celebration of the love shared between lovers created in God's image. They bask in each other's beauty and in their ability to satisfy their need for physical love. Song of Songs pays homage to the wonder and majesty of monogamous sexual love when that love is intensely pursued with honor and faithfulness. Our world today is enamored with sexual pleasure. Modern culture tends to compartmentalize such pleasure and disassociate our sexuality from our faith in God. But this best of songs provides a point of contact between human sexuality and biblical faith. The Israelites recognized the sensual side of human nature as a part of God's wonderful creation. God created us male and female, and most are quite happy about that. In this most intimate of human relationships, we somehow reflect God's image. Furthermore, the marriage bond provides the closest possible unity in human relations, and one in which there need be no shame or disgrace. In this sense, Song of Songs transports the marital relationship to the pre-fall Garden of Eden where husband and wife enjoy each other with no inhibitions. The book testifies to the mutual complementarity of man and woman. It affirms the sanctity of marriage and approves erotic heterosexual love within the marital bond. Now even reading that last sentence kind of gives me heebie-jeebies and mixed company and to think of saying that in the context of the church is not something that I take a great deal of delight in but I do think that the message of the song of Solomon or the song of songs is a message that is much needed in our world today a message that husbands and wives need to hear that there is joy and gladness and satisfaction and sensual fulfillment to be enjoyed within the bonds of marriage There was a time early on for me in ministry when I thought probably the most urgent issue with regards to sexual immorality in marriage was the prevalence of premarital sex. And I am still firmly convinced that this is a great threat and much of the reason that marriage has declined the way that it has in our culture. But I have since those early years, through many, many, many encounters in counseling, come to appreciate that just as premarital sex is a danger to the sanctity of marriage, so is the absence of marital intimacy a danger to the sanctity of marriage. A husband and a wife, a husband-wife relationship is certainly more than sexual intimacy. But sexual intimacy is a a significant part of who God has made us to be as husband and wife and a pretty important part of the husband and wife relationship. 
Song of Solomon with tact and with appropriateness describes the, the full measure of joy and satisfaction that can be experienced between a husband and wife enjoying the fruit of marriage in a way that God intended, in a way that deserves no shame, but that can be enjoyed without inhibition. Good enough? I think I got all that out without turning three shades of red. How about that? So what I think I'd like to do is to walk through uh, verses 1 through 17, essentially to walk through the first chapter of the Song of Songs, and then provide you with some helps at understanding the flow of what remains of the Song of Songs. In fact, let's do some work with understanding the flow first. Are you looking down at chapter 1 of Song of Songs? If you look to verse 1, this is where we learn that it's appropriate to refer to the Song of Solomon as the Song of Songs. Verse 1 says, Solomon's finest song. A, a more literal translation would be the Song of Songs. In other words, in the top 40 of Solomon's day, this is number one on the billboard chart. This is the best of all songs, and it's a love song. It's a song that is, again, appropriate. It celebrates marital intimacy. It's the Song of Songs. Now, just before verse number two, depending on your translation, you'll either have a W. How many of you, show of hands, see a W there in bold type? How many of you see the Shunammite or Shulamite? Show of hands. Just, just a few. In either case, the W or Shunammite, Shulamite, represents the person whose part in the song that is. So you choir people will really get this. It, it's the W for the women's part. In fact, one commentator that I was reading today in order to stress a certain way of seeing the Song of Songs rather than referring to the Shunammite or the Shulamite or even a woman, he just he used soprano. He said this is the soprano part. And then for the male part, he said this is the tenor part. And then for the parts that seem to be intended to be sung by the choir, he just said those are the choir parts. What he was pressing there is that this is a literal expression of intimacy between a husband and wife, but at the same time, it's, it's not necessarily intended to be understood exclusively within the context of Solomon's life and this particular bride of Solomon, but is a celebration, a proverbial celebration of the intimacy that can be enjoyed between a groom and, and his wife, although it, it stresses just as much the wife's fulfillment and satisfaction in marital intimacy as it does the man. So if you're in the Holman or one of those translations that uses just the letter to indicate who's singing at this particular part in the song, the, uh, the W represents the woman, the M represents the man, the Y represents the young women of Jerusalem, the daughters of Jerusalem in some of your translations. The N represents the narrator. There's a point or two along the way where a narrator says, this is the setting, this is what's unfolding to help us understand the flow of the song. The B represents brothers, and if there is a letter or a name in parentheses, it means that there is scholarly debate as to whose part in the song this is. So the Hebrew text does not have W's, B's, Y's, or, or uh, M's. It just has uh, pronouns that are gender-specific, so you have to look at the gender of the pronouns that are being used in that part and make a determination based on those pronouns whose part in the song this really is. So if you've ever thrown open Song of Solomon and thought, I don't know what this is all about, maybe now you have some access to understanding the flow of the song 
as it uh, moves through chapters 1 uh, through 8. I, I want us to go back to verse number 2 and pick our way through these 17 verses. And I, 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 think, if, I think if we look carefully at these verses, it's kind of help you get an idea of what Song of Songs is really doing. Verse 2 says, and this is the woman, the Shunammite, speaking or singing here. I won't sing for you tonight. I'll be thankful for that. Oh, that he would kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is more delightful than wine. That phrase might also be translated, your caress is more delightful than wine. It might even be translated in more expressive ways of the intimacy and joy between a husband and wife. It is better than wine, the Shunammite says. Verse 3, the Bible says, the fragrance of your perfume is intoxicating. Your name is perfume poured out. No wonder young women adore you. There's some debate as to how this is to be structured. Hebrew poetry is notoriously difficult to translate. No matter how you translate this verse, what seems to be clear here is that it's his fragrance and his name that have an intoxicating effect on, on the woman. The groom's presence, his scent, his fragrance. Now, if you've been at marriage for a long time, maybe you've forgotten of those silly affections and feelings in the early days when you were just head over heels and googly-eyed and, and frankly, just stupid with love. You know, you remember that? And the, and the scent, the fragrance of, of your partner had a certain intoxicating effect. This is what's being celebrated here. Young love, this Shunammite is pouring out her heart and expressing the deep passion that she has for her man. She says in the close of verse 3, no wonder young women adore you. In verse 4, take me with you. Let's hurry. Oh, that the king would bring me to his chambers. Now, the reference to chambers here seems to be a, a, a reference. We've, we've, we've not gotten to the more challenging parts for the pastor yet. She's saying here, oh, that you would take me to the chambers in the sense that you would take me to be your wife. She's saying, let's get married and let's hurry up about getting married. I, I always get in trouble with moms and dads. I had a this discussion briefly with my youth Q&A a couple of weeks ago, I see such incredible foolishness in this culture of young people waiting until they are well into their 20s and pushing 30 before they get married. I just see that as silly and, and frankly dangerous. And I think it's reflective of the fact that we have prioritized financial or academic success over being spiritually right with God. God said it is not good that man should be alone. And for that matter, it is not good that woman should be alone, except in those rare instances where there is that gift of singleness. We can say with the Shunammite, let's get married and hurry up about it, right? You know, I, I, I really don't understand. I could stay here for a while, and I'm, I'm not. And, and your children are not here, so maybe I'll get by with this tonight. But as moms and dads, I just want to encourage you to be, be cautious about requiring things of your children and grandchildren that will lead them to sin, that will breach their commitment to God who is in heaven. 
they are, you are not wired to bear with the absence of intimacy in this way once God has led you to the right person and at the right time, nor are your children or your grandchildren. We have to stop saying you need to graduate college before you can reasonably be married. And what you'll notice is, in a lot of cases, those who are deadly serious about sexual purity prior to marriage will refrain from the years-long engagements. I'm not saying that that's universally true. That's a generalization, so nobody throw anything or get mad at Brother Wade. Uh, But I am saying to you that sexual purity outside of marriage is critically important. And we'd be foolish to ignore that God has made us in his image created for intimacy within the bonds of marriage. The Shunammite says, boyfriend, it's about time we got married. And it's time like now, like now, like right now. Some people want to correlate brief courtships with skyrocketing divorce rates. And I just think the two have nothing whatsoever to do with one another. In my first church, I preached a funeral for a a lady who died right around her 60-year wedding anniversary. I'll never forget the story that she and her husband told me about how they got together. They, They went out on a date, a double date, on their first date on a Saturday night with other people. He went on a date with her best friend. She went on a date with his cousin. That was Saturday night number one. On the next Saturday night, they went out on a date together, Sam's the best friend and the cousin. The next Saturday night, they got married. And 60 years later, he held her hand as she breathed her last breath. Now, I'm not telling you that that's the approach that your children and grandchildren need to take. Do not misunderstand me. But what I am saying to you is that lengthy courtships are not the answer. It's the absence of commitment and a broken understanding of marital intimacy and love that contribute to skyrocketing divorce rates, not extended or abbreviated courtships. So the Shunammite says, let's get married. And that ain't a bad idea if sexual intimacy is on the agenda. She says in verse, the remainder of verse 4, we will rejoice and be glad for you will praise your love more than more than wine. There's debate about who's singing this, if this is the Shunammite or the choir. My personal opinion is that this is the daughters of Jerusalem who are celebrating the love that the Shunammite has for Solomon in uh, the close of verse 4. Shunammite picks up again in what remains of verse 4, saying, it is only right that they adore you. Daughters of Jerusalem, I am dark like the tents of Kedar, yet lovely like the curtains of Solomon. Now, in our culture, in our day, being tan is socially acceptable and understood as being beautiful or attractive, like that's pretty significant in our culture. But that has not always been the case. In fact, for most of the history of of the world, being tan was an indication that you came from among the working class. It was not a desirable trait. In fact, what you were looking for in a bride was lily white. In, in fact, if you really want to know the truth about it, you, you were looking for a, a lady that was a little larger than what would ordinarily be understood as being acceptable in our culture and who was lily white at the same time. Things have changed to some extent. She's saying here, I, I don't bear the appearance, uh, an appearance that m- meets the expectations of social standards. 
And the reason that she doesn't is because she's been hand to plow laboring for the well-being of her family and those around her. She is, for fear of getting in trouble with some of you ladies, a low-maintenance lady. She's, she's worked. She is familiar with labor and exerting herself for the well-being of, of her family. She says again, daughters of Jerusalem, I'm dark like the tents of Kedar. I bear the marks. I bear in my body the reflection of this labor that I've been participating in for all of my life. But that is not to say that she is without beauty. She says, I'm dark like the tents of Kedar, yet lovely like the curtains of Solomon. In her own unique way, although not meeting the standards or the expectations of the standards of her day, she is beauty, beautiful in and of herself. She is beautiful in her own right. Surely she's seen that way by Solomon. That's clear, if nothing else is clear, in studying the Song of Solomon. There's a special attraction that exists between the man and the woman in our Song of Songs. And there is a confidence about this woman in spite of the fact that she may not be what her culture suggested she should be. There, there is a quiet confidence about her made in the image of God that she is herself a beautiful woman. She says, I'm dark like the tents of Kedar, yet lovely like the curtains of Solomon. In verse 6, don't stare at me because I'm dark, for the sun has gazed on me. My mother's sons were angry with me they made me a keeper of the vineyards. I've not kept my own vineyard. In other words, she says, I've been taking care of my family to such an extent that I've not had the ability to take care of myself the way I might otherwise have taken care of myself. It's really kind of a beautiful thing that we observe in the character, in the character of the Shunammite, right? So she, she is herself not meeting the expectations of society primarily because she is more interested or concerned with meeting the expectations or needs of her family and perhaps even beyond that the expectations of her God this is by the way men the kind of woman that we're looking for we, we we've been going I mentioned this a few times through the Proverbs same author right Solomon is the author of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon and uh, studying through there and we sat down on the 31st of August to look together at the, the virtuous wife in Proverbs 31 and kind of sat down with the idea, what are these three knucklehead boys going to get out of this, you know? And, and it, it occurred to us collectively that Proverbs 31 is not about woman be this kind of person. It's about son, this is the kind of wife that we're looking for. And, uh, and, and, and this brothers is the kind of wife that you're looking for that is more concerned not neglectful but more concerned about the well-being of her family than she is even about herself in verse 7 the bible says tell me you the one the one i love where do you pasture your sheep where do you let them rest at noon why should i be like one who veils herself beside the flock of your companions can y'all follow what is being described here the Shunammite says hey shepherd where do you keep your sheep she says where do you let the sheep rest in the noonday like this is really good sweet talk stuff right here you know I got some good ones for you later in the Song of Solomon that, that you men can use with your wives I, I got uh, let, let's see here your teeth are like a flock not one is missing 
Your hair is like a flock of goats. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon looking toward Damascus. How about your waist is like a mound of wheat? So I got lines for you, brothers. I got it for you tonight, right? What's being described here? She says again in verse 7, Tell me, you the one I love, where do you pasture your sheep? Where do you let them rest at noon? Where are you hanging out during the day? That's in essence what she's saying. She's making plans to be where he is. Sometimes, and I recognize I'm probably not talking to a lot of people who are dating, but sometimes when, when I am talking to people who are dating, there's almost this idea of I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to wait and God is going to wave a wand and provide me with a husband or a wife. And I'm just saying to you that that's foolish. It doesn't work that way. What you need to do is to find out where the person of your liking rests their sheep at noon and go be where they are. She's making arrangements to be where he is. Now, she says in what remains of verse 7, where do you let them rest at noon? Why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? Now, if she doesn't know where he is so that she can go immediately there, then she has to, culturally appropriately, veil herself and then go from pasture to pasture until she finds where this person of special interest is for her. So she just asks him straight up, where do you rest your sheep at noon, shepherd? Where are you going to be spending your noonday? And she makes arrangements to be able to be there. Now listen to how he answers in verse number 8. When we get to verse 8, this is him speaking. And, and he doesn't give a direct answer either. There, there's a playful back and forth between the Shunammite and Solomon. If you don't know, most beautiful woman, follow the tracks of the flock. Pasture your young goats near the shepherd's tent. He doesn't give her a specific place. But in the playful back and forth, he seems to indicate to her that she may come to where he is without the veil and without concern because unlike the way she was treated by her brothers who oppressed her and forced her to work, who treated her without equality, that in his presence she would be one among, among equals no matter what the gender of the company might look like. In other words, in the playful back and forth, he said, sister, you come to where I'm at, and I'm going to make sure there ain't nobody fools with you. you. You come to where I pasture my sheep, and I will provide for your protection and see to it that you are treated as equal regardless of where it is that you go. In verse 9, the Bible says, Solomon speaking, I compare you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Now, this is another one of those lines, right? If you, hus if you go home tonight and say, honey, you remind me of a horse, you're going to get to sleep on the couch. But in the symbolism and the imagery of the Song of Songs, what, what he's saying is really impressive. It's beautiful. The, 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 the mares that were a part of the Pharaoh's chariot guard would have been decorated. They would have been ornate. They would have been beautiful. They would have been regal. They would have been kingly. And, and he's here bestowing on her this description of, of honor and regality in response to her modest evaluation of herself. Don't look at me. I'm dark. Like this, like 
the sun has beat upon my skin. I, 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 don't, I don't look like culture says I ought to look. There's a timidity about her, and he responds, oh, no, my dear, you, <laughs> you are compared to, the, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. He says in verse 10, your cheeks are beautiful with jewelry, your neck with its necklace. We will make gold jewelry for you accented with silver. Now she speaks again, beginning in verse number 12. While the king is on his couch, my perfume releases its fragrance. My love is a sachet of myrrh to me, spending the night between my breasts. My love is a cluster of henna blossoms to me in the vineyards of in Gedi. Now what's being described here, although the language might be unsettling, is, is the idea of him being enveloped or overwhelmed by her love. He, 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 when he lies with her, will be surrounded by her love. My love is a cluster of henna blossoms to me in the vineyards of En Gedi. Pleasant fragrances were costly and celebrated in ancient culture. And the henna blossoms of En Gedi represented the most rare, the rarest of uh, fine fragrances. She saw him as of, of great value. She loved him. She appreciated him. There's a word of encouragement and help for you ladies here this evening. I don't know if you know this or not, but men are egotistical and we like to hear good things said about us. Now, again, I'm not sure that all of the references that the Shunammite uses for Solomon will work any more than the references Solomon uses for the Shunammite will work. But there is something to be said for praising our partners, for, for celebrating and, and rejoicing in the provision that God has made through our wife or, in the case of you ladies, our husband. In verse 15, he speaks again. He says, how beautiful you are, my darling, how beautiful your eye imagery may not resonate with us, but it beats goats, right? Better than some that we've seen. He doesn't just offer this generic word of praise, but identifies what it is about her that appeals to him in that moment. What it is about her appearance that is worthy of celebration. She says back in verse 16, how handsome you are, my love, how delightful. Our bed is lush with foliage. The beams of our house are cedars and our rafters are cypress. Now, it was a big deal to have cedar paneled houses in ancient Israel. Maybe you, maybe you remember in the book of Haggai, after the people of Israel have come back into the land of Israel, they've resettled the city of Jerusalem, they've built their homes, and the temple remains in ruins. And Haggai asks, is it appropriate that we dwell in our cedar paneled houses while the house of God lies in ruins? What he's saying is, you, you are living in these lavish residences, and the temple of God is still torn asunder. It's a, it's a word of, of judgment against the people of Israel. But this is not a literal house that's being described, right? This is a love setting. This is a love scene that is unfolding outdoors. Th there are no cedar panels. There are cedar rafters. The beams are cedar, and the rafters are cypress. They're outside. This is... This is a Hallmark movie moment, right? They're outside in a meadow, and there's cedars, and there's cypress trees, and they're just googly-eyed with love one for another, right? This is what's unfolding here in the passage. 
Now in chapter 2 and verse 1, we'll look at just a couple of verses there before we close out. She says, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valley. Now we're familiar with the language of a rose of Sharon. It's a description that we ascribe to Jesus, a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valley. And that's born out of this particular passage. But as the Shunammite says this of herself, it's really a modest appraisal. When, when she says here, I'm a, I'm a rose of Sharon, uh, rose is probably not the best translation, although really the translation is not the issue. It's just that a rose of Sharon is an identification for something else today. It was a much more common flower in ancient Israel. What she's saying is, I'm just one among many flowers. But he responds in verse 2, you're a lily among thorns, my darling among the young women. You are not just one among many. You are the one for me to cherish. It's really a sweet back and forth. This is the kind of book that would be good uh, Bible study and bedtime reading for you and your spouse to give some time to focus in your reading. It, read it out loud, and you men read the male part, and you ladies read the female part, and, and that might help to understand the back and forth and the beauty of what's being described here in the book. It, it really is a beautiful read if you give it some time, and you might be a little bit surprised at how forward some of the passages in the Song of Solomon are with regard to marital intimacy. Now, it is clear that what we are building up to is an expression or experience of intimacy that happens within the bonds of marriage. In fact, in chapter 3, verses 6 through 11, the narrative speaks and provides for us background to what we're reading. In verse 11 specifically, the narrative says, Come out, young women of Zion, and gaze at King Solomon, wearing the crown his mother placed on him, the day of his wedding, the day of his heart's rejoicing. All of this angst and want for marital passion being expressed in chapters 1 through 3 it is, is finally to be consummated after chapter 3 as bride and groom come together as husband and wife. In fact, in chapter 3 of verse number 5, there is a warning against um, sexual intimacy or even experimentation prior to marriage, a warning that is issued multiple times in our book. You could go back to chapter 2 and verse 7 first, where the Shunammite says, Young women of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and the wild does of the field, do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. Again, in chapter 3 and verse 5, the Shunammite says, Young women of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and the wild does of the field, do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. Now, in the imagery, you ladies will appreciate this, I think. In the imagery, the, the fact that gazelles and does are being used here says something about women in, gender, in general. They are pictured in the Song of Songs as beautiful, um, as energetic, and as, for lack of a better expression, they're people who are hardwired in the image of God to enjoy sexual intimacy in the same way that men would. And she warns, she warns that you're not to stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time 
because this will rob you of the ability to enjoy what God has provided within marriage to its fullest extent. Don't rob yourself of the beauty of this occurs not once, not twice, but three times within the Song of Solomon. Now, let's, let's look for a moment in the few minutes that we have left at how we might understand the Song of Solomon within the context of the Bible itself. Here we have a detailed picture of the intimacy that exists or ought to exist between a husband and a wife. There are, there's beautiful imagery throughout the scripture with regards to marriage. And then the New Testament helps us to understand more fully that God intends marriage to be a living, breathing illustration of the relationship that exists between Jesus and the church. It's a reminder to us of the depth of intimacy, the closeness in relationship that Jesus desires to have with his people, not in some sick and perverse way, but he loves us dearly. Perhaps second only in terms of the way it expresses God's affection for his people to Hosea chapter 3, where Gomer, Hosea's wife, has committed adultery over and over and over again. There's a reason that Gomer is not a common name among ladies. And you won't find women all kinds of biblical names, no Jezebels and no Gomers, except on the Andy Griffith show, and that's a different context. And God says to Hosea, you go find her, and you pay her price, and you bring her back, and you make her yours. Now, brothers and sisters, that is grace. And everywhere we see marriage discussed, described, talked about in, in the biblical context, it is always an illustration of the deep and abiding love that Jesus has for his church. A, a God who has said of his people, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. A God who is keenly interested in where we pasture our sheep, that he may be where we are, that we may be where he is, that we might know one another closely as a man with his best friend, even as a man with his wife, a wife with her husband, that he would be the friend who knows us inside and out. Aren't you glad for Jesus, our Savior, and the love that he has for us? That, that no matter how faithless we are, how broken we are, no matter how hard we often run in the wrong direction, that he pursues us and he pays the price and he makes us his you may not like my commentary on engagement for your children or your grandchildren, but you've got to love the fact that Jesus comes hard after his passion and his love and his grace. Aren't you glad for that? Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the insight and the help and encouragement provided by the song into marriage and relationships in general. Thank you for the way you've provided for us, for that observation that you made of, cre of your creation, that it is not good that man should be alone. Uh, Lord, you have provided uh, in incredible ways. God, we thank you most of all tonight.
for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the means through which you have made us your own, sealed the covenant bond between heaven and your bride, the church. Thank you that this covenant is inviolable, that what God has put together, no man can put aside. Thank you for the love that you've shown us in Christ. We ask it in his name.